The following podcast may contain movie spoilers, outdated pop cultural references, and occasional f***ing language. But listen anyway. Yes. Rolling sound, quiet. Speak. Good day, good world. What you watching? Be specific. You've tuned into another episode of Subgenre, a podcast about the movies, season two. As always, I'm your host, Josh Dassel. On this show, we go down the rabbit hole of movie subgenres you forgot you loved. And in our second season, we're seeing larceny at its elegant best with films about charming thieves. In today's episode, the tracks lead us to a lighthearted 19th century heist set aboard a moving steam train. Directed by acclaimed novelist Michael Crichton, it stars Scotsman, the late Sir Sean Connery, goofy Canadian Donald Sutherland, and elegant Brit Leslie Ann Down as a gang of thieves out to go for the gold. Call the coppers, governor! There's a robbery afoot! We're watching the 1978 charming thief classic, The Great Train Robbery. And joining me live in Studio K to talk about the film is another veteran of subgenre, specifically subgenre season one. It's playwright and a new father for the second time over, Alan Mall. Welcome back, Alan, to subgenre. Josh, it means so much to me that I was asked back and not asked to never return again. <laughs> I haven't thought about asking no one to never return again, but you know, you could be the first. We could make this one the first if you like. Let's go for it. But yeah, it's great to be here. I am neck deep into two kid life which as i've learned recently is kid squared not kid doubled so it's lovely to be with an adult having adult conversations about a great movie well like we mentioned you have uh, been here with us on subgenre before specifically back in season one i think it was episode number five where we talked about a movie that i know you have some love for uh u571 a classic that i saw multiple times in the theater when i was in high school and a submarine movie set in the Second World War that I would argue is underappreciated and deserves a lot more watching. You'll know this if you go back and listen to the episode, but I walked into that episode not ever having seen that movie, came into it actually with a bit of an impression that it wasn't going to be a good one, and walked away on the other side of our conversation, actually appreciating it a lot more than I did going in. Who could ask for more? <laughs> well, speaking of movies that I haven't seen, the movie that we're talking about today, The Great Train Robbery from 1978, I will admit up front, I hadn't seen it until it was time to do this show. Had you seen it before here? This was my first time watching it all the way through. This is one of those movies that's perennially like on television, like Saturday afternoon, you tune in and it's about 60 minutes in. You're like, oh, this is like, I, I remember this one. I, and you kind of have to piece the plot together from like different sections of watching it. This is the first time I'm like, no, I'm going to sit down and watch it from beginning to end. And it really deepened my love for this movie. Well, it seemed like one maybe that we should cover in this season two when we're talking about Charming Thieves, because honestly, who could be more charming just generally than Sean Connery? Uh, this movie reminded me of like how many more Sean Connery movies I need to watch. It's classic Connery. It's great stuff. <laughs> well, I think we should definitely talk a bit more about Connery here as we go along through the show. Let's first maybe set up this film 
Who's in it? Who made it? Uh, give us some background. Set in 19th century England, this is a master criminal played by Mr. Connery himself who attempts to steal 25,000 pounds in gold from a locked and moving train with the help of a cracked team of thieves. Sounds like a heist movie to me. It hits all of the heist tropes you want. Like, it's based on a true story. It gathers a bunch of, like, experts together that are good at different aspects of criminal activity and everything else. It's adapted from the novel by the same name by Michael Crichton, who also directed the movie and wrote the screenplay, and I think I saw it with a Michael Crichton production as well, so I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if he had a producer credit on this one. So uh, if you like Michael Crichton like me, if you grew up and read Jurassic Park way too young and then decided to read all of his other books when you were in middle school like I did, mm -hmm. this is one that I had missed and I'm happy that I got to finish and see. Starring Sean Connery, who needs no introduction, is Mr. James Bond from Goldfinger, Dr. No. And he was in last season's uh, episode, actually the very first episode of Subgenre, where we covered The Hunt for Red October. And uh, Great Train Robbery also features the great Donald Sutherland, the pride of Canada, who's known from everything from MASH, the Hunger Games films, and uh, giving us Jack Bauer as his son. <laughs> Thanks, Donald. Thanks, Thanks Donald. Donald. We're set. It also has the, stars the beautiful Leslie Ann Down, who's best known from TV shows like Dallas and Days of Our Lives. And Upstairs, Downstairs. Yeah, so produced by John Foreman, whom you might know from uh, producing uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Sure. And The Man Who Would Be King. Uh, with Sean Connery. With Sean Connery. So, uh, director of photography was uh, Jeffrey Unsworth, who you might know from uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey and Murder on the Orient Express that also starred... Sean Connery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Jeffrey Unsworth, Michael Crichton aside, we can talk about Michael Crichton here in a minute, but Jeffrey Unsworth, if you want a resume that will blow your socks off, it's this guy. He shot everything that I like. Some I liked more than others, but he shot movies like the original Superman, Donner Superman. He shot, of course, Murder on the Orient Express, like you mentioned. He shot A Bridge Too Far. And of course, anybody who uh, has the credit for shooting 2001 is going to be top notch in my book. Great team of talent on this one. And editing was done by uh, David uh, Bretherton. David Bretherton, sure. Yeah, you're known from uh, Peyton Place and Westworld. And, yeah. Pe and Peter Elliott helped him with that one. You've also got uh, music by Jerry Goldsmith that you oh, might yeah. know from Patton, Chinatown, and First Blood. Of course, First Blood. Blood. He's sort of like Jeffrey in that way, in that his resume is possibly even more insane than uh, Jeffrey Unsworth's. Because if you look at what Jerry Goldsmith has done over time, I mean, yes, the ones that you mentioned before, but you can start picking them out. You know, the original Star Trek movie, I think, was his. He did movies like Gremlins. He did movies, you know, all the way back. If we, if we want to stretch, he was composing for TV back in the 60s. Like he was doing Gunsmoke episodes. So lots under this guy's belt. Yeah. And produced by the uh, Dio de Laurentiis Company and released by uh, United Artists. We missed you in the uh, in the United States in February 1979. I called this a 1978 movie. And I, that's because it was actually released in 78 in the UK, released under a slightly different name. It was released as the first Great Train Robbery, not to be confused with what's referred to in the British press as the Great Train Robbery, which happened, I believe, in the 1960s and was the basis for the Phil Collins film Buster. That's a piece of trivia that I now am very grateful I have in my life because I had no idea. <laughs> but here in the U.S., we didn't have another Great Train Robbery. And so it was and actually I take that back. We did have a movie called The Great Train Robbery. Great Train Robbery was, is a cinematic classic. It's that silent film, if you remember, one of the first silent films that got some acclaim. And it's famous for the shot at the very end of it of the gunslinger pointing his gun directly at the screen, ah. 
pulling the trigger, the smoke goes like he's shot, which at the time scared the hell out of people watching mm. movies because they didn't know any better. Everyone's ducking and covering in the theater. Yeah, yeah. and that yeah. shot's been repeated a thousand times over. Count Martin Scorsese among ones who, who did it in Goodfellas. And, and the movie was done with a uh, $6 million budget in 1978 dollars, so inflation would carry that a little higher, but it grossed more than $13 million worldwide, so they more than doubled their money on this one, which I think was much well-deserved. A successful film. Not hugely successful, but a, a pretty successful film. Pretty awesome cast. Yes. Uh, really awesome crew and above-the-line people making this thing. So, solid film it seems like it should be. Let's take a look at it and see if that actually turns out to be true mm. when we talk about our feature presentation. Of course, our feature presentation is The Great Train Robbery from 1978. If it needs saying, and it shouldn't, there are spoilers ahead. You have been warned. And our film starts us back in the year 1855. Yeah, so England is at war in the Crimea, which we all unfortunately know about because of what happened back in 2014 with Russia. So troops from England are paid in solid gold from a UK bank once a month. They're strong boxes from Huddleston and Bradford Bank with 25,000 pounds. In London. In London. With 25,000 pounds of gold, they're put in a train at London Bridge Station. Now, the strong boxes are placed in this safe. The safe has four keys, and they're distributed between four people. I love this voiceover because it's like it's the author making, who's also the director, who's also the producer, saying, I want you all to understand there are four keys to this safe. It's Michael Crichton saying, I'm going to simplify this for you. Here is a box. It is empty. There need to be four keys in this box so that we can pull off this big heist. The heist is 25,000 pounds in gold. The reason we have 25,000 pounds in gold on a train is because England needs money for their, their war in the Crimea. There it is. Everybody, it's set up. This is where, you know, the reason this money exists in the first place. And it's done in this voiceover at the beginning. And I can't remember. Is it Connery's voiceover or something so. else? Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's Connery's voiceover, which... You know, it was 78. Voiceover has its place. Voiceover has been used well in the past. I'm not sure I loved it here. I did not love it here. A lot of writers, it's cruise control for awesome. You're like, yes, we'll sound gravitas and you'll understand. I'm like, people don't listen to things. They just want to see what's happening. Show them. Don't tell them. The good news is that immediately after the voiceover and, you know, the short nap that I took during it, there is an immediate action sequence, which is a fight going on on a moving train. The train car, for some reason, where the fight is happening is filled with chickens. Um, so you have chickens flying everywhere. You have men flying everywhere. And in the midst of this fight, there's a man that is tossed out of the train, rolls down a hill, and dies. We begin the great train robbery with a not great train robbery. <laughs> The attempted robber, whom we never get the name of or anything else, his ass falls out of the train. And then Sean Connery, who is playing Mr. Pierce, riding with Miriam, played by Leslie Ann Down, see this guy die and then roll off in their carriage. Yeah, for some reason, they just happened to be there. And I couldn't quite figure out, was it by chance, which if it was by chance, that's a hell of a chance for what's coming up soon. Was it that Connery knew someone was trying to rob the thing and was just waiting in the exact right place for whatever, I don't know. Or was it C, like some other machination that plays into this that I just didn't understand? Some unanswered questions, to be sure. Yeah, and Miriam, who is with him. So let's introduce Miriam. So Miriam, played by Leslie Ann Down. Miriam, we don't quite know yet who she is. We, we honestly don't really know who Sean Connery is yet. We just know that he's a gentleman. He's wearing the coat and the hat, and he's in a carriage, and he has a driver. And she's with him and dressed to the nines as well. So we, we set time and place, and we set that this is a man of means. And from there, we cut to a room full of other 
other gentlemen, including Pierce, who were discussing the attempted robbery, the war in Crimea, and the problem with women's suffrage and what a ridiculous concept the idea of women <laughs> voting is, just in case we felt some sympathy for these rich assholes who are getting ready to get robbed. <laughs> yeah, it seems both a problem to them if it should happen, but also, ha ha ha, that will never happen. Who would think such a silly thing? And what cracks me up about this scene is it's just, it kind of does all the exposition that the voiceover gave us live in a dramatic scene. And I just like, I have to wonder, I'm like, why did we have this and the voiceover? But I'll take off my film crit hat. No, please keep your film critic hat on because it's a great point. The voiceover to me, here's what it is. The voiceover to me feels like test audience voiceover. It feels like somebody showed this movie. We had written into the second or third scene, whatever it is, that all these guys were going to sit around and talk about where the money was and why we had it. And they got a bunch of note cards back that said, why is there money? We don't get it. And slapped this up front. I completely agree. And it's exactly what it felt like to me, too. So they're sitting around. They're having cocktails. They're talking about uh, all these different things, that there was this attempted robbery on a train to which the some of these men are from the bank, I think. And so, mm-hmm. so the, the men from the bank are saying, ah, it wasn't really a real robbery. Like, he never had a chance. Yeah, there was a guy. Yeah, he tried. Yeah, he got thrown off. But he, ne- he never had a chance at anything. But one of the people who is from the bank, who's going to play a large part in this film going forward, forward is the bank manager by the name of Fowler, played by the actor Malcolm Terrace. Fowler makes a big point to the group saying that, like, there are these four keys, but they will never be stolen because I keep mine around my neck at all times. And the screenwriter in me was just beaming from ear to ear when I saw this. I'm like, you know, we're setting up where the keys are. (laughs) (laughs) We found one. Yes, indeed. And standing with these gentlemen because he has established himself as a man who can run in these circles is Sean Connery's Pierce. Listening to the discussion and participating in it. And participating. I mean, not only reinforces that he belongs in this group, but also that he is the last one any of them would suspect to be involved in a great train robbery. Right. And he wants to know more about the train. He's the guy who sort of pushes for details. Like, how, how did they fail? What did they do that what was wrong? What wrong here? What would you have done differently <laughs> if you were robbing yourself? You know? Okay. We've established that, again, where the gold is, but we have added to it four keys, right? And here's one of them. We know where one of them is. It's around Fowler's neck at all times. Even when you're bathing, the men ask, even when I'm bathing, he says, right? Which then leads us to the next scene where Pierce is back in Miriam's room. We get a little bit more about Miriam. Seems like she's an actress or, or is in the theater. She's dressing. So we get late so, 70s, early 80s legs and lingerie. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And uh, this is the first scene where you see Pierce eating some fruit while he's hanging out with her, which my wife pointed out, I think the third time that it happened, was he's always eating some kind of fruit in one of these scenes. He's got like an orange later and stuff like that. So if you're playing a drinking game while watching The Great Train Robbery, this is your cue. I kind of wonder, was he trying to quit smoking and this was his bit of business that he could do was like peel an orange. It does something to do with your hands. That's true. But Pierce is discover- discussing his uh, personal cover story with Miriam as she dresses. And I think gives away in that scene that he's not Pierce. Like that is the name that he's been using with all of these other people. That's not really his name. Mm-hmm. And he's had maybe many names and this is just one of a few. We have the goal. We have the keys that we need to get in order to get the gold. But now we have to fill out our gang of who is going to go after this. And we we found Pierce. We have Miriam. Our third person starts out standing on a London street corner with a bunch of other guys. And this is Donald Sutherland's character, Agar. And so they spot a rich woman and follow her, causing a distraction. And then for one, one of the men with him to pick the lady's pocket. And Pierce... He picks it. He does, that's right. Donald Sutherland himself, the other guys sort of surround her, like get on, form a box around her, fall down or something in front of her. Oh, can I help you? She goes for them and Donald Sutherland lifts her wallet. Immediately afterward, he's joined by Pierce, who, uh... 
has watched the entire thing and is essentially decides to give him some notes. Like, oh yeah, it's a good performance there. I like what you did. Good wallet snatching from that lady. Unbeknownst to Agar, I think. I think he's admiring himself in a store window somewhere and Pierce pops up out of nowhere. Hey, great pull. And then their rapport shows us that they know each other. They're familiar with each other's abilities. It's like, and Pierce basically lets Agar know, I might have a job related to uh, keys because I hear that you're a guy that knows knows his way around key molding. There is a specified name it's for a crack, what he, a cracker or something like a that? Cracks, a cracks, cracksman. <laughs> I think cracker may be something different. Yeah, let's edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> He's a cracksman, which translate, I think, in Victorian slang or Edwardian or whichever time we're in, that he is a guy that can break safes. So, Agar, I, you know, I know that you're really great with safes. Got a job for you if you're up for it. There is this guy. Uh, his name is Trent, Edgar Trent. Uh, he's played by Alan Webb. Uh, and this is the president of this bank of uh, Huddleston and Bradford that is the one that issues all of that money that's going to go on the train. Now, he hasn't mentioned the train at this point. He just says, hey, there's this guy, Trent. Trent has some a key or some keys that I need to get. Do you think you could do the, ah, no, you can't do the, you're, there's no way you can do this to which Agar is like, uh, yeah, I certainly can. I'm the best. And so like uh, Agar having his uh, interest sufficiently peaked decides to plot together with them, with Miriam to figure out how they can get this key from Edgar Trent. And I love that they're going for the bank president first. It's like, let's knock out the, the big guy ahead of time. The guy with the estate, the guy with all the servants, we're going to take on the most complex job first. While they're planning this, There's a fourth dude in the room. It's Pierce, it's Miriam, it's Agar. And then there's just like the guy who sits in the chair and never says anything and I think shows up you know, later as a driver. Do we ever figure out who that is? No. I never figured out who he is. The unsung hero yeah. of uh, the great train ride. Anyway. The guy that drives everybody places. So yeah, they are going to, they're going to take on the bank president. Uh, they're going to go find his key first. They, as you do in a good heist movie where you've got to kind of run these side games in order to get to the main one, you have to figure out what your Mark's weakness is. I think it's Pierce who has the line, you know, no respectable gentleman is that respectable. Mm. They're going to go find his weakness. And so you always wonder like, okay, it's a Victorian society. Is it going to be like, you know, into inappropriately aged women? Is it going to be like, you know, into the opium trade? It's like, nope, we find out this bank president is what they call a ratter, which makes us all wonder, like, is he going to go catch rats? Does he play with rats? Does he put on a rat puppet show? No. He raises dogs to fight rats. Am I getting that right? Is that a ratter? Yeah, following the fine English tradition of pitting one larger animal against several smaller animals, he's a ratter who takes his his prized terrier that he clearly loves very much and takes him to a club where men bet on how many rats this dog can kill in a short amount of time. Yeah, and it's everything that you're imagining right now. It's an underground club. It's smoky. It's stuffed with dudes in top hats looking down into a little pit where things are fighting. It is the worst possible place for an upstanding gentleman to maybe get caught in, but it seems to be a love of Trent. And so after his dog successfully wins the rat routing competition, Pierce manages to like get some time away to like admire the dog and, and like say like, oh, it was, a, it was great. Like, you know, I, I should have bet on your dog instead. The gentleman responds like, oh, he's like, so you lost your bet? Like 10 pounds, a trifle. And, and like, that is like gentleman speak for like, you know, I'm a man of means. Don't worry. It's 10 guineas, wasn't it? What's the guinea? to pound exchange rate. I couldn't tell you. I, I'm an American. I don't know those things. <laughs> I love I, that you're like, actually, it's 10 guineas. I, just, I don't know what that's better He acted a lot more impressed than if it was 10 pounds. That's so I'm true. assuming it's a lot. But yes, there's like the private lounge. They're hanging out. Pierce walks in. Hey, good fight. And ingratiates himself with Trent. Make sure to repeat several times. 
I'm a businessman. I do lots of business worldwide. Oh, really? You do a lot of business worldwide? Yes, I do business. And, you know, it's impressive to Trent, who has apparently a daughter looking for a husband. And, oh, wouldn't this gentleman be an interesting suitor? He makes sure to drop that, like, oh, I, I remain unmarried. Work is my mistress. Mm-hmm. Cut to uh, Trent introducing Pierce to his own wife, Emily, played by uh, Gabrielle Lloyd, at their mansion. So and they're talking water wheels. Oh, my gosh. Every kind of innuendo that a mechanical engineer could come up with. In- this scene, man, you're right. It starts out as a very benign conversation about, hey, we're making a ruin. Uh, we're, we're creating this old water wheel and whatever. We're going to put it over in this place. And very quickly, while Trent is off doing whatever Trent does in the background, you have the sort of randy wife, Emily, and you have the playboy charming thief, Pierce, who are innuendoing the hell out of this scene. It's like, you know, everything from like lubricated shafts to like, you know, I've heard that there are many great erections across America. You should come see them sometime. Yes, to which she replies, yes, here they're in short supply. (laughs) Mm. So this is the perfect way to uh, get an introduction to the stepdaughter of this woman. Is it the stepdaughter? Oh, yeah, yeah. It was definitely like, uh, because she she was, uh, I think, 25 years the junior of the uh, the bank president. So it was definitely like his second wife. And and so this is Elizabeth, then the daughter. Elizabeth has her own charm about her, but is a little plain. Plain. That's the word. She's, of course, very swept away by uh, Sean Connery's Pierce, like, you know, showing an interest in her and everything else. And Pierce and Emily take a walk to the garden where Pierce uh, shows a lot of interesting propositions, sir. Pantomiming sex is basically the proposition as they're out in the garden. <laughs> and it's within five or eight steps of where they've just been. Sometimes you got to move fast. So back at home. All right. So we've had Pierce, who's met Trent. Trent has introduced him to Emily and Elizabeth, to Elizabeth as a potential suitor, right? So he has an in with Trent. Mm-hmm. Back at his own place, or I guess at, at probably Miriam's own place, Miriam doesn't love the fact that he is courting another woman, even if it's just as a means to getting this key. Miriam is a complete knockout, and you have to wonder. It's like knowing this guy is, a, is like a con man and doing all this. But like, you know, she still ha- apparently is jealous of this whole situation and asks Pierce point blank, like, do you ever tell anyone the truth? To which he just responds. No, no. <laughs> never. Never. No. Never. <laughs> which is an, an indication, too, in that scene that I'm probably not even telling you the truth right now while we're sitting here having this conversation. Indeed. Yeah. What do you do with the lady from Polite Society? the daughter Elizabeth who wants to go do that kind of stuff you do what all people in top hats do you go fancy horse riding Mm -hmm. which is what they do at the estate the next day and while they are riding these horses there's a couple of things happening and one of them is that Pierce is getting himself closer to Elizabeth making her fall in love with him he's wooing her he's saying oh my darling you are my everything and whatever it is that he tells her but makes her blush touches her arm, all that kind of stuff. But doing that as a means to keeping her interested because she started talking about her father and the gold shipments. Because the entire thing is Pierce wants to know where the key is. And so he's trying to figure out where Elizabeth's dad is going in the house that might reveal where this key secret location is. And he manages to get her to drop. He's always going down to the wine cellar, but he insists on being by himself. He goes down to the wine cellar alone. Every time the, the money is being delivered, he goes down to the wine cellar alone. 
Oh, really? That's interesting. Light bulb, that's where the key is. Right. And this is heard by Pierce. It is also, if not heard, then at least seen that he's gotten the information by Miriam and Agar, who are sitting nearby in a carriage pretending to sit there and watch the fancy horse riding. So what do you do with that information then? You've got to sneak inside the house and get inside that wine cellar without anybody knowing. So cut to, it's evening at Trent's house. Miriam pulls up in a carriage and distracts the butler with some sort of uh, story about like being accosted. I can't recall exactly what the... Uh, was it? She, she's lost? I th- that's right. Yeah, yeah. She, it's like she show, yeah, she's in a fancy carriage. Whoever that fourth guy in the room was is driving the carriage. We don't know who he is, mm-hmm. but he's here. And she rings the bell. Hey, I'm lost. Can you tell me where such and such's house is? Butler's out there talking to her. And while the butler's distracted, Pierce and Agar sneak inside, avoiding Elizabeth and Emily who are playing like a dueling piano concerto. <laughs> yeah, they are. Is it, it's a minuet or something. And they're on those old style like alto piano things and they're just rocking. It's just like to the point where you're like, wow, they must do this together a lot. Like considering this is not her blood, her blood daughter. They're just like, like it's like the piano is going and they're as focused as they possibly can be, which allows Agar and Pierce to sneak past them and get towards the cellar. So getting to the cellar is not as easy as it sounds. The cellar door is essentially right across the hall from where these two ladies are rocking out. The door is locked, so Agar's got to pick the silly thing and do it without making a sound Mm -hmm. for everybody. So, okay, he's got to pick the lock. They pick the lock. They go downstairs. It's dark. They got to find lights. They got to figure out, you know, where in this place a key could be. And what complicates matters while they're looking for this key, apparently, is that Agar is allergic to dust. Oh, my gosh. Ham factory. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like performance from Mr. Sutherland where he just sneezes as loud and as high-pitched as you possibly can imagine consistently while they're trying to be as quiet as possible. Like It's cartoon level Yes. <laughs> this is where I'll start to talk about Michael Crichton because some of the directorial choices in this film, to me, are a mystery. And one of those is the direction for how to play Agar, which Donald Sutherland does in, again, sort of a cartoony villain fashion. Yeah, it's like you're supposed to believe that he is tremendously confident, competent, and has done this many, many times before, but he just can't resist the sort of like mustache twirling kind of antic where it's just like, hey, watch this, you know, it's like, or just these cartoon level, like Yosemite Sam level sneezes that he's doing in the basement. It's literal mustache twirling. There are scenes where he's, he's twirling mustaches, he's templing his fingers and rubbing them to get like, it's that sort of performance. And here that provides maybe a little suspense to this scene because, uh, who is it, Uh, Emily from the other room thinks she hears something from the cellar because of the sneezes and all that kind of stuff. But it was a a a little much. It's a little much. Hearing these sneezes, she sends the butler to check the cellar. But right at the moment where they start to hear him come down the stairs, Trent calls the butler away because he needs him to help with something else. So crisis averted. They are not caught in the act. They find the key hidden behind a bunch of wine bottles. And you see the first time Agar makes an impression of the key in wax. This is something he'll repeat four times over to make the other molds. But it's like you just get you get a sense for how long it takes to do this. He has to press like each side of the key. He's got to press like the top and the bottom. He's got to get a sense of like what it looks like in this wax box that he keeps for the purpose. He'll go pour whatever he needs to metal into that wax mold later. He'll make the key that uh, supposedly fits, you know, and file it down, do all that kind of stuff. But yes, this is the process. We have to find the key. We have to make a wax impression. And 
immediately then we get the payoff for that, which is the first of four gold keys then that get laid into this empty lined box, showing us how many more we have to go. Achievement unlocked, you've gotten the first key. This is, you know, when you're writing films, this first part is sort of what you might refer to as the fun and games. This is where, uh, especially in heist movies, this is the planning stage. This is where we're putting together all of the different pieces that are going to potentially serve us well for the big heist that comes later. And usually it's mini heists that happen at this point. And this is the first of a bunch of mini heists. So first key secured. Pierce and Fowler now stand at the bank counter. So Fowler, you remember before, is the gent that always keeps the key around his neck, even when he's bathing. And what are they doing? They're ogling all the women that come in. And Fowler is trying to see which ones he thinks he would have a chance with. Which would be none of them. No, he's not an attractive man. The one that catches his eye the most, I would certainly uh, make a deposit in that one, is, you know, those those sort of jokes are happening for everybody else that's coming in. But the one that really catches his eye is a French woman, a woman who comes in speaking French to the teller at the counter. Well, of course, this is Miriam, dressed up, coming in, speaking French. Oh, my goodness. Pierce says... Oh, I know her. I'm acquainted with, I can't remember the name he gives it, but I'm acquainted with her. Fowler said, oh, you really? You know this one? You must make an introduction. This sets up the like the, the scheme to get the next key. Like, should we cut to later? Miriam is just furious that Pierce is even getting her close to this smarmy guy. It's like, what, you want me to sleep with this like awful gentleman just so you can get the key? Isn't there any other way we can do this? And Fowler's basically like, if you don't want to do it, that's fine. But if you don't do it, we're not going to get the key. We're not going to get the gold. So, you know, it's your decision. But if you got to sleep with the guy, you got to sleep with the guy. And this, you know, again, time period. It's 1978. The rules were a little different back then. The norms were a little different back then. But there is a very large misogynistic streak that runs through this film. And this is one of those first big moments oh, of it. This is, this, this is the moment that my wife said, like, I could tell this movie was made in 1978 and not like, you know, last year at this moment. <laughs> Just like the fact that this scene got greenlit and was and was done the way it was done. We have to judge these things by their time period, right? We're not going to apply today's standards to it. But if we did, <laughs> did. this would not screw up, man. This would not make it into the film. <laughs> Cut to the brothel where Agar is now impersonating the brothel host. Pierce arrives with Fowler to make the introduction to uh, Madame Lucien. Madame Lucien. So, Lucien. so this is what they've come up with as a plan to get the key off of Fowler. If we remember, Fowler wears the key around his neck at all times. It does not come off even when he's bathing. Whereas Trent's weakness was dogfighting. How did we get to Trent? We went to the dogfight. What is Fowler's weakness? Women. So how do we get to the soft spot on Fowler? We put him in the presence of the woman he wants most, which is this French woman that has come to the bank, who Pierce refers to as Madame Lucienne and we find out she's a prostitute. Miriam is very smart about how she plays this because in the scene where she has gotten him by, like, by themselves, they are in the room upstairs, she is telling him that like she is drawn to his power and wants to see him unadorned first. So she's very uh-huh. careful to undress him as fast as humanly possible and take her sweet time taking all of the layers of clothes off that she has and when he protests about the key, she makes sure that it won't get lost. It'll get put right over here next to the closet where Agar is hiding. And, and the putting on of the clothes is funny because you see her sort of acting demure, turning away from him, like retying a bow that she can then turn around and untie <laughs> for him yeah. and then turn around. So, yes, it's dragging this out because she's obviously waiting to be saved. And she's waiting for Agar to get done an impression of the key from off in the corner where no one can see him. And the savior to take her away from this is not coming fast enough. But of course, soon it does. And what it comes in is in the form of a whistle. So it's a it's a police whistle. It's the house madam whistle. It's whatever. But it's a warning whistle 
the house is being raided. Yes, indeed. So the, this house of ill repute is soon to be upended by the police, or at least so Fowler believes, my reputation, I'll be ruined. And so <laughs> Pierce rushes Fowler away wearing, I think, only like his red like night shirt, like his undershirt right. or whatever. Right. And he's got all his clothes and it's just like bumbling down the stairs and hoping no one recognizes him. And Pierce is acting as his savior in this. You know, he mm-hmm. set the whole thing up to begin with, but he's putting himself in the position of having saved Fowler, which draws him even closer to Fowler, which is going to be helpful for him later. But it is a farcical sequence that plays out from start to finish exactly as you might expect it to. Yeah, the, t- the tone shifts in this movie are great because like you get the shadowy moments, you get the really intense action scenes and I love that you get, you still get these like comic moments where it's like, it's just funny to watch this like Fowler just go, oh, like, you know, trying to go down the stairs. And of course, what's the outcome of all of this rigmarole? That a second key gets placed beside the first one in our lined box, which means that we are halfway to being able to go rob this train. And we're going to talk more about that when we come back. When you're done listening to this episode, why not pick up a great book? Ask your bookseller about Art Curious, stories of the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history. It's what Publishers Weekly calls an offbeat and informative outing into the weird, wacky, and unbelievable backstories of some of the world's greatest artists and most famous works of art. Get the scoop on the murder, mayhem, and mystery behind stories like the thefts, yes, I said thefts, of the Mona Lisa, how the CIA impacted artists like Mark Rothko and Jackson Pollock, Andy Warhol's really odd time capsule collection, and the possible murder of Vincent Van Gogh. You'll find all of this and more in Art Curious, Stories of the Unexpected, Slightly Odd, and Strangely Wonderful in Art History from Penguin Books, written by Art Curious podcast host Jennifer Dassel. Visit artcuriousbook.com to find your copy now. That's artcuriousbook.com. You are back listening to Subgenre. I am here in studio with Alan Mall talking about the great train robbery. How you doing, Alan? Tip top, man. It's a great place for us to uh, continue talking about this film. But before we do, let's take a deep dive. On the deep dive, we are going to concentrate on a singular topic. And that singular topic for today feels like it should be maybe the films of uh, Sir Sean Connery. So Connery is one of those actors that watching this again made me realize how much I missed him. Even though he passed away in 2020, rest in peace. He had retired from acting like, you know, years before. So it had been a while since I had seen him like on screen. And what I love about Connery and all of his movies is he's an actor that really gets that he has presence. He gets that like, you know, that when he's on screen and everybody in the scene is looking at him, everybody like knows that he's there. And there's a swagger that he brings to so many of his roles that's like really, really fun to watch. James Bond is like the easiest example. Sure. You're right. He is one of those people, kind of like Bogart in that way. He knows that all eyes are on him when he's in any room and he gets that and he takes the most advantage of it. That does sometimes mean that Sean Connery maybe always means that Sean Connery plays Sean Connery. Yeah. And it's one of those ones that like, if you like watching him for who he is. And I do. Yes. This movie is a great example of him just like for another actor it would be phoning it in for him it's just like he is making a like a set of precise choices within the calibration that he likes to work in and you know it's like you see this kind of thing in like the James Bond films in like uh, Entrapment which is like a not not a great movie from like 1997 with mm-hmm. him and Catherine Zeta-Jones 
But the character of it in Entrackment is very much an older version of what you see in The Great Train Robbery. It's the Devonair master thief. Like, you know, he's been there. He's done this a hundred times. He's going to execute on it. And I think it's like the fact that he plays those roles so often means that sometimes the Connery performances that I cherish the most are the ones where like a director pushed him to like get out of type a little bit. And my favorite example is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where, yes. he, where he plays Indy's dad. And he still has the Connery kind of resolve, that swagger and that arrogance, but it's in a much more like academic, intellectual, erudite guy thrown into a world of fist covering and adventure kind of way. So you, he plays this like fish out of water who is very sure of himself whenever he's in his comfort spaces, like talking about history, talking about archaeology. But when he's on the run for the Nazis, it's funny to watch Sean Connery play bumbling. Like, he doesn't quite know how to, what he's doing. There's none of that Connery, well, I won't say none, but the Connery sexiness that just sort of comes as part of the package, you know, the debonairness, just sort of melts away in that role. And it's, you're left with the confidence without the swagger. And that's what makes it so brilliant. I mean, you know, the easiest example from that movie is when they're like, they hop off of the blimp in the escape plane to get away from the Nazis. And after successfully shooting down one of the fighters going after them, Indy's dad, played by Sean Connery, shoots their own tail of their plane <laughs> rather than take responsibility and says, like, I'm sorry, son, they got us. <laughs> it's not often that he plays against type. Not often. And even in those moments where he is playing Sean Connery or some version of Sean Connery, he's always able to find ways to make that really work. And a couple of them that I would point to, and we pointed to one maybe earlier, which is The Hunt for Red October. So you still have that kind of, you know, swaggery, confident Connery that is Bond, but just slightly tweaked. Same with The Untouchables, I yes. think. Yeah, yeah. As he got older, I think he became more confident taking on roles where he was like playing this person with a sense of like magnitude and responsibility. And Hunt for Red October is a great example of that one. If you saw First Night, the one where he plays like a King Arthur, it's also that sense of like the aged king who can still swing a sword, but he's like, you know, he doesn't have to impress anybody anymore and he's doing his thing. And if you want a good like underrated one that people probably haven't thought about for a while, but uh, finding Forrester is another one that I really, really loved because it's Connery playing like somebody with swagger and arrogance, but it's like, but he's reserved rather than being really, really bombastic about things. The young character that he's kind of mentoring as a writer is saying, well, you won some award? He's like, yes, of course I won. The Pulitzer. You know, it's just like... <laughs> His career started, you know, I think, was it back in the 50s, like late 50s? At 57, he had been doing, if I remember correctly, he'd been doing some TV spots here and there. He'd been picked up and done a lot of theater and then decided, hey, I want to try to be a movie actor. And his first feature was in 57. It was a movie called No Road Home. It was a Montgomery Tully film. Basically, a crime film is where he started. Oh, because again, watching The Great Train Robber made me think like, God, there's so many Connery movies that I haven't seen that I need to like go back through because I love watching this guy do his thing. There's a lot more like arguably better, but much more fidgety actors. I think about people like Dustin Hoffman and stuff like that, who is just like swinging all over the place with his characters. He's got to figure out like a new way of going about each role that he plays. And he often is really successful. He's a legendary actor, but Connery's fun because he knows who he wants to be. People love watching that enough that like variants on that same major key just keep working every time. We'll wrap this section up because I can tell we're both fans of Sean Connery. We both like his films. A couple of other films maybe that we haven't talked about his, and maybe we can say a couple of words about them. You briefly mentioned Entrapment. So talk to me a little bit about Connery and Entrapment because 
I think it's worth mentioning. This is a movie that coasts by purely on sex appeal. Like, so it's just like, it's Sean Connery and Catherine Zeta-Jones, two of the most beautiful people to ever be on the screen. And it's another like heist type movie. But the thing I most remember about this movie was there's this prolonged, prolonged sequence of Catherine Zeta-Jones practicing getting through the lasers that she needs to get through to crack the safe or whatever else. And it's just gratuitous scenes of her in like, you know, spandex gliding under these things and doing these ballet type moves. And I'm just like, guys, I get it. I mean, look, the pleasure of the look. This is why people watch movies, yada, yada, yada. But like, give me a plot. Give me the story. Just get us back to it. I've gotten this. It's fine. Move on. Um, the last one I'll, I'll mention before we wrap this up is he did an uncredited turn in Robin Hood, uh, Prince of Thieves, <laughs> as the king. Richard the Lionhearted. I love that yeah, he shows up at the end, does his Connery gravitas, and uh, yeah, did not get to get need to get credited in the movie because everyone knew who he was the second he was on screen. It's kind of like bringing in James Earl Jones at the end of Sneakers. You just bring him in for that brief moment. Like you said, it's the moment of gravitas, and it's the moment where the audience just gets a little treat because they get to see this person they love so much. Well, well, there we go. The films of Sean Connery, as narrated by myself and Alan Mall. Good guy, good movies, and uh, let's get back to this good movie. So we've been talking about The Great Train Robbery from 1978. When we left off, we were back with all of them, I guess. We were back with Agar. We were back with Pierce. We were back with Miriam playing uh, Madame Lucienne at this brothel where they had just lifted the key off of Fowler through subterfuge. They've managed to make a copy. They now have two of the four keys. Okay, that's not enough. They need two more in order to get this plan off the ground. And so where are we going to find those other two keys? Well, it turns out both of those keys are at the train station. Yeah, so this should be the easy part, right? These are two keys in the same location. Unfortunately, this is like arguably the toughest like bit that they have to pull off. Well, they're in the upstairs office. There's, where everyone can see. Where everyone can see. It, it, it's like, you know, it's like you look up there behind glass windows. You can see like there's like all eyes at the train station are on this place. No one is sneaking into that office and doing anything nefarious no. without everyone knowing about it. And there's going to be a lot of planning that's going to have to happen in order to come up with whatever this scheme is going to be, this sub-scheme to go steal these keys. But before they do that, Agar, who we established, Donald Sutherland's character, is kind of a goof nut, but also supposed to be really smart. Finally, now that they're at the train station, puts two and two together and goes... <gasps> I know why we're stealing these keys. Yeah, which is a nice moment of just you realizing like, oh, wait, they're not all on the same page. Like he hasn't told them what the job is yet. And I think to Agar, it, it not only dawns on him, wow, this is like not only going to be hard to steal these keys, then we actually have to pull off the great train robbery, which no one has ever done. Are you out of your mind? Yes. Like, are, this is what you've gotten me into? You're insane. But Pierce assures him there is a plan in motion. And that plan presents itself pretty quickly. We see Miriam once again acting as the damsel in distress mm. that she seems to play throughout this movie, but intentionally so for yes. each of these uh, each of these schemes. She's waiting on a platform. She's carrying a handbag. And there is a small boy nearby, Pierce tapping on his nose like, hey, now's the time to do your thing. A Victorian waif. There which it is. belongs in every one of these 19th century English films. The small boy, who's one of their plants, steals Miriam's handbag. And, of course, this causes a great commotion because, like, they intentionally, like, notice him doing this. And they're like, stop that boy. Stop that yeah, boy. Yeah, Pierce is yelling it. Stop him. Stop that boy. Yes. And so Agar, like, leads the chase, chasing this kid upstairs and into the office where the keys are held. 
And sitting in this office, you've got three guys doing clerical stuff. Whatever it is you do at a train station when you're overlooking the tracks, they're in there as the boy bursts in, Agar bursts in after him, Pierce bursts in after Agar, and somewhere in, in the background, eventually, you know, cops will burst in. But right now we have these three. This was not a great plan because when you watch it in action, it's like the boy is basically playing jungle gym on the inside of this space right. while like Agar goes around just accidentally hitting every single one of these clerical workers while they're trying to avoid this child and he's nominally chasing this kid and trying to like get to where the keys are and make the wax thing like yeah accidentally in quotes here it's the most ham-handed oh i'm sorry i whacked you in the head with an umbrella sort of moment and this is a great one great moment to say like when donald sutherland gets a chance to play this hammy funny kind of character it is really fun to watch him do that yes. even if the tone is completely different from a lot of the rest of the films now the trouble is this terrible plan does not work out well the real police show up well before agar can wax both keys but Pierce has noticed that there's another way into the office. Yeah, right above his head, there is a skylight that is on top of this office sitting inside the train station. So not a skylight to the outdoors, but a skylight underneath the bigger roof of the train station. But it's a way in that isn't the front door. And that's going to come into play with plan B, which is OK. We can't go in during the daytime. That didn't work. So what are we going to do? We're going to have to go in at night. Well, the problem with going in at night is there is a guard that apparently does not move from his position for a majority of the night in front of this office. The most reliable guard in the world because Agar watches him night after night and times down to the second how long it takes this gentleman to go off for a bathroom break and then come back. It is exactly 75 seconds. Now, I'm amazed. Like, I have gone to the bathroom a great many times in my life, and I don't think it always takes the exact same amount of time, but... Yeah, this Victorian gentleman is like a Swiss watch. He seems to be older than me, and my pee time gets longer the older I get. <laughs> and I, I can't imagine ever being able to do it in 75 seconds. But there we are. We've established we have 75 seconds of free time for someone to climb in through the skylight, get behind the guard. They're trying to time it to see how long it takes to get Agar in and out. Like, right. like could Agar run up there in the 75 seconds in order to get everything done while this guy is in the bathroom? And it really just does not feel like enough time. And so to that plan, they add this element of, well, what if we got somebody to climb up the outside of the train station, find his way in, climb through the skylight, get in there and basically prep the whole place, like unlock everything. What if we did that? Could we then do it in 75 seconds? As they discuss amongst themselves, there's only one person in all of England who could pull this off. Oh, but he's inside Newgate prison. He's already been caught for another crime. He's what they refer to. We were talking about names of different types of criminals. And we said that Agar is a what do we call him? The cracksman. A cracksman. This guy is a snakesman, which is not what it sounds like, folks. It's not filthy. He is somebody who essentially can shimmy and get in and out of any place. He's the team ninja, the one that can like, you know, climb right. walls, like, you know, and like get into tight spots. And his name, which I love, is uh, Clean Willie. Yeah. So Clean Willie's in prison, right? We need him, but he's in prison. So how do you get the guy in prison out of prison? Well, Pierce has that figured out. So yes. he takes a walk. A walk down a dangerous street at night. And if you're ever a Sherlock Holmes fan, this is when you get to have your moment of like Victorian ruffians trying to attack. So we get this kind of gratuitous like fight scene yeah. of a bunch of Victorian rogues attacking like Pierce as he's walking the strange street at night. In true Connery fashion, he beats them all up and then draws like the sword out of his cane, causing the last one to run off. So he fights off his attackers. 
finds his way to a shady brothel. This is not nearly as nice as the one we had earlier <laughs> it's a in the different movie. One. And this street, by the way, this is when you think of old London street, like this is exactly what you think it is. It's, you know, the open fires and the, hey, honey, come in, you know, that sort of, it's Diagon Alley yes. from, from Harry Potter. That's what it is. That's where he's wandering. And there apparently is a brothel on uh, Diagon Alley. Inside the brothel, he finds a sex worker that I don't think he knows, but he he's he knows of her and he knows enough to know that she knows Clean Willie. So he bribes the sex worker to not do, uh, you know, the unmentionable with him, but rather to get a message to Clean Willie that it's time for him to break out of New, Newgate Prison and go to a house where he first met a man named John Sims. There's this mention of John Sims in this scene, which at the time was a little confusing to me. I didn't quite get, we'll find out later that this is an alias of Peter. He asked her, I know you go to the prison to meet this guy. When you're there, tell him, come find John Sims. Well, how, how, and she's questioning him, how somebody just break out of prison? Don't worry, he'll break out of prison. He's, he's clean, Willie. Yeah. Cut to a prison yard where we're watching a hangman's noose being strung and all of the Victorian crowd is out there getting ready to watch a good execution. So we're watching this like, you know, procession where like the condemned person who is a woman is marched by and the our entire gang is watching from an upstairs window. We're right next to the prison where this is happening. It's family entertainment. I mean, what else are you going to do? It's done no TV, no radio. They have gotten obviously the message to clean Willie. While this hanging is going on and this whole procession is happening, we watch Clean Willie leap out of the shadows and start to, Jackie Chan style, really scale this wall. The funniest thing to me about this scene is that, like, they're breaking Clean Willie out of prison. But to put that in quotes, like, Clean Willie does all of the effing work on this one. It's just like... He has to climb up the wall. He has to he has to distract the guards. He has to get his hands cut up trying to climb over the fence. And you're watching him in this like scene that honestly, like the, you're worried the guy's going to fall and like just break his neck. Well, speaking of that, the guy that plays Clean Willie, who is uh, an actor named Wayne Sleep. So the story goes, Crichton is like, hey, Wayne, we know that you have some acrobatic ability. We're going to need you to demonstrate this here in this scene where you climb the wall. And it's basically Michael Crichton getting cheap, not wanting to get a stuntman and getting Wayne's. Wayne Sleep did the climb. That's the I actor thought, himself doing I the climb. I noticed that they didn't, that it wasn't a stuntman doing it. And Sleep's like, dude, I'm not a stuntman. Like, I'm an actor. So, ah, you'll be fine. And we're going to get this sort of actors doing their own stunts thing as we proceed through this movie. And I'll talk more about that when we get there. But, but yeah, uh, Wayne Sleep climbs a wall. And manages, like, you know, just barely exhausted. His hands are cut up. He, and, but he makes it to the roof right as the condemned woman, like, the floor drops out and she's hanged as the crowd cheers and applauds. And Clean Willie staggers into Pierce's room. He's just completely exhausted, but he has escaped prison. Okay, so we have the crew, as bloodied and cut up and battered as they may be, we have theoretically everybody that we need in order to pull off this heist. The thing that we don't have is we still haven't figured out that 75 second question. 75 seconds is how long, if you remember, Agar has to get in and get out of this office in the train station, make his wax keys, and go before the most reliable guard in the world gets back from going to the john. And this is a scene of preparation, right? Screenwriters out there, this is a scene of preparation. This is also... <sighs> Did you like this scene? Let's describe it first. This is Pierce timing Agar trying to mime doing everything he's going to need to do in the 75 seconds and not quite being able to make the time. Again, like the movie has some tone problems. And this, this is a great example of that where you get to watch goofy ass Donald Sutherland, like all six foot something of him 
He has set up his own little obstacle course inside their hotel room where he is like practicing how long he takes to go up the stairs, which he mimes running in place. He has to unlock the door and he's, he's perfected like how long it takes to do that. He's pantomiming mostly like what it's going to be to go through and do this thing and trying to beat 75 seconds again and again and failing. And dying out of breath. Just can't go on, which really makes him be a bit defeatist. Like there's no way I'm going to beat 75 seconds. This can't be done. What are we doing? This is stupid. Pierce takes advantage of that and says, yeah, you're right. You, you should probably go take a rest. You're tired. And of course, Agar is not going to stand for that. I, I can do it. Yeah, it's just like, no, I will do this thing. And so there, haggard and out of breath, he doubles down and tries again. Oh, and look at that. He does it in 74 seconds. 74 seconds. So we got a second to spare. <laughs> We've done it, right? Which obviously means that that's a great idea and we should go forward yeah, with it. It's going to work perfectly. It's going to work great. Whether it's the next night or a few nights later, this plan is put into action. So we see Clean Willie, who has broken out of prison, who is our snakesman. We see him scale the outside of the train station. We see the guard at his post where he's supposed to be outside the office, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. We watch as Willie drops through that skylight that Pierce had seen before and unlocks all the cabinets for Agar and then kind of chills out on the floor. And then we see Agar in his position, kind of back with Pierce, a little ways away by where the train is, watching all of this and getting ready for the moment where our guy who's eating his lunch and drinking his beer is going to go to the bathroom. Everything looks as it did in when they were casing the joint, mm-hmm. right? The guys still wander back and forth. There's the door. They're going to go up and do it. He's managed to do it 74 seconds in practice. He can do it here in 74 seconds. The thing that happens that complicates the situation is that a gust of wind blows open the office door, which is going to draw the attention of that guard if the guard notices. Who needs to keep the door closed? Yeah, yeah who needs to keep the door closed? That That is kind of his job. And Willie, who is so damn exhausted from having climbed into this thing, and is chilling out on the floor, is paying it no attention. Agar sees it, Pierce sees it, it's a problem, and they're going, oh God, please see the door, please see the door, please see the door. And for a moment, you think the whole thing's going to be given away. Well, of course, Willie eventually notices, manages to shut the door very quietly just in time then for our guard to take his break appropriately. And Agar, with his cartoony fingers going, okay, here we go, here we go, is ready to go. Agar is like successfully going through his run, but the safe keys are not in the cabinet where they're supposed to be. Oh, God. Yeah, we'd seen them there when they went in before with the pickpocket. We know where they're supposed to be. They aren't there now. Cue a lot of panic and, like, you know, and uh, <laughs> Clean Willow just has this moment of just, like, uh, it's like watching, like, Agar just kind of fumble at this thing. Like, I, I, I schlepped my ass up and, like, hopped into the skylight and you can't even find the keys. And Agar is, like, bumbling, but he finds them at the bottom of the case, and he gets, manages to make the wax impressions just in time to get out of the office and not be seen by the most prompt guard in the world. So this is where, <laughs> you know what? No, I did, put a pin in this moment right here because we're going to come back and talk about this moment in a while. But yes, he does manage his 74-second run. He has made wax impressions of both of those keys. So what does that mean? It means that we get the shot of the final two gold keys being placed in the lined box. Ta-da! We have all four keys that we need now to pull this job. Yes, indeed. The Triforce has been assembled. The four keys are there. (laughs) Achievement unlocked. We are ready now for the Great Train Robbery. We are, indeed. Before we get to robbing a train, though, there's going to, of course, after our scenes of preparation, after these little fun and games moments where it looks like we've put together the entire package that we need, well, of course, it can't be a straight line to going and getting the gold. We have to do a few other things. The first of which is we have to have a little exposition Mm. and a little character development, and that's 
that's between Pierce and Miriam. Miriam is like is helping Pierce shave in this very like intimate moment. And they talk about when they first met. He sent her flowers when she was performing in the theater as an actress. Which left an impression on her. Yeah. Um, hey, I'm glad you sent me flowers. It was, wasn't that nice. And Pierce, you know, he never tells the truth to anybody. He's established that. But tells her, I, I didn't send you flowers. It's kind of this moment between them of, you didn't? This moment I've always thought that made you this wonderful man. You didn't do this. Okay, maybe I did it. But I, if I did it, I got the flowers from a cemetery, right? It, <laughs> it, the point of that scene really being that she has real feelings for him. He reluctantly, maybe, mm-hmm. has real feelings for her. Even though he is this charming thief, even though he is this gentleman thief trope, he has a lady that he actually cares for. Okay, great. We've gotten them closer, and that's wonderful character development. We go from this sort of nice light scene to a nighttime scene, which is in a cemetery, where Pierce is creeping through the dark and ends up tapping on the shoulder, and not letting turn around, but tapping on the shoulder of a policeman who does know him as John Sims. So he hands the policeman some money secretly and tells him to look the other way on the next night at the train station. <laughs> at the station, yeah, he says, hey, you know what? Uh, what's going on uh, tomorrow night or however many nights left? Uh, just just don't do anything with that. We'll find out later that this guy is a, a an actual guard on the train. That's I don't know if it's terribly clear in this scene, but we will find that out fairly shortly because at the station, we are putting our plan into action. No time like the present. And the way that we put the plan into action to start with is we put an eye patch on Agar. Yeah, the best disguise ever is if you give somebody an eye patch, you will never recognize them again. This is the Victorian version of putting spectacles on Superman. <laughs> so, like, uh, Agar in an eye patch, he's dressed as a circus ringmaster and asks the same guard to, uh, you know, let me in with this baggage car with this screeching baboon. And the guard's like, well, you can't ride in there. And he's like, oh, well, that monkey will become very upset if I don't ride. And the monkey proceeds to scream its ass off anyway. <laughs> yeah, at this point, this guard has no idea who Agar is. He knows who Pierce is. He's met Pierce. Pierce says, look the other way when whatever happens tomorrow happens. Agar shows up dressed as a ringmaster. Hey, that's my baboon. You got to let me into that cart you're you're guarding. Okay, I'll let you in so the baboon doesn't tear my face off. Mm -hmm. But once they are inside... Agar reveals himself as an accomplice of Pierce. And you realize this entire scene is for them to test the keys in advance before the safe is filled with gold just to make sure they work because that would be pretty awkward if you did all of this just to find out that you molded the keys incorrectly. Awkward is a kind word. (laughs) (laughs) The keys do work and then cut to the scene at home between Pierce and Miriam as he is laying out the plan. Now, Miriam naturally is just asking, okay, so we do this. Everything works out great. We have the money. What happens after that? With this one last score, this is sort of the the other, mm. you know, a, a trope. This, this is our one last score. What are we going to do after that? The implication being... What are we going to do yeah, after you that? You and I together yeah. that are sharing this room in this bed. You know, what are we going to do next? And uh, he can read the room and tells her whether you believe him or not. Well, of course, we'll go to Paris together. And that seems to appease her. That sounds really nice. She'd like to do that. Whether she believes it or not, mm-hmm. we don't know. But she does ask him a last question before we leave them. What if something goes wrong? She asks. And he tells her in the most Connery way possible. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah, right. Which is very Connery, is very Pierce, 
but is also a nice line because it's so obvious that things are going to go wrong from that point forward to sort of test the confidence of all of these people. Cut to the prosecutor, played by Donald Churchill, who's dictating a letter to Pierce, asking him to meet to discuss something of mutual interest. And then we pan over and see that Clean Willie has been caught stealing a purse and is now like being forced by the police to like get in on this scheme to catch Pierce before he can even rob the train. How bad is it that this whole robbery is undone because Clean Willie couldn't keep his hands off somebody else's purse. Come on, we're almost there. You're going to steal 25,000 pounds of gold. But nope, the purse gets stolen. He gets caught. And he's flipped. He's a, he has to flip or else he's going to go back to prison, which obviously he didn't want to be in bad enough that he was climbing walls and getting his hands cut up. You begin to realize, like, okay, uh, the police are scheming to do something to catch Pierce before this even happens. We cut to the horticulture of... It's fate. a horticultural fate. Uh, fate. Is it pronounced F-E-T-E? Feet? Fate? I think it's feet. Fet, feet. Fet. Feet. Fet. Whatever it is. It's a big party. It's got that pointy symbol over the E. It's a party at the botanical gardens, basically, where everybody's standing out watching fireworks, picnic baskets, the whole nine. It's something that everybody in town has gone to and... It is a perfect place with all the noise and the people and everything for Willie to have met up with Pierce. Pierce finds Willie and is and like makes sure that Willie does not look at him while it, like, like the idea is that like you don't know me, I don't know you, and like uh, Willie's saying like I need some more money, sir. Like you know he's basically trying to like you know keep Pierce in place for the cops to be able to identify him. Pierce is two things. Pierce is like a I don't know why you'd need more money. Like you got a bunch to start with a. And B, real suspicious, dude, like you've been flipped, right? This is a scam and you flipped. It's like if you've turned, la- like what was like, if you've turned nose on me, I'll make you lavender. Like I, I wanted to- I'll see you in lavender. That's what it is. Which I've learned since then has kind of a double meaning. See you in lavender, I guess, was a phrase that meant basically I'll see you dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you're- funeral arrangements or something. And there was also a cemetery that was the Lavender Cemetery, uh, which I don't know if one came from This was from a reference other. that I like, I intuited part of it and then just kind of, I'm like, bad things will happen to this guy and Lavender will be involved. If you turn on me, I'll see you in Lavender. <laughs> yeah, so as Pierce leaves, the cops immediately lay hands on Willie to escort him away. Agar sees it and Willie sees Agar also being alarmed. He knows that something's up. And then Pierce starts like trying to make his way out as fast as humanly possible. But on the way out, he passes Emily and his uh, former fiance in, in the old con, Elizabeth. He has to get away from them quickly. And so, you know, makes up the excuse for the, when they ask, where have you been? What have you been doing? He's like, oh, I got married. I got married. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> and off he goes. And so we've had a close call for Pierce with the cops. Willie, who thought that he could do this maybe and get away with it has not because Agar was there and Agar saw Willie, understands that he's working with the cops, is able to relay that to Pierce. So we understand that Willie is not our friend anymore. And Willie knows. Willie Willie voices to the cops earlier, like, look, if I get found out about this, they'll kill me. And that leads us to our next scene. It's a chase scene. Pierce like sees Willie at a pub and Willie runs for his effing life, trying to get away as fast as he can. And again, he's the ag- he's the snakesman. He's this really agile guy. He can like, he's faster than everybody else is running in and out of houses past people. What is that house he runs through where there's a bunch of people who are leaning over asleep, just leaned over suspended ropes? Yeah, I had to believe it was like a bunch of drunks. They were trying to like keep sober. It was some it was like some like flop house or something. Yeah, like, I kind of wondered if that was the like you couldn't afford a bed. And so you had a rope that you could lean over and go to sleep sort of a house. Well, I got I don't have enough pence for a bunk, but give me one of those ropes. <laughs> <laughs> so Will, Willie's doing his thing. He's running upstairs 
upstairs, downstairs, through these places, and finally thinks that he has gotten far enough away, enters the doorway, essentially, of his house really far away, and is hanging out in the doorway thinking that he's got away, but of course he hasn't. So relieved, he just leans back against the windowsill, just like, oh, all the breath goes out of him. I have escaped. And hands reach in through the window and choke him to death. Who? Who did that? It's not Pierce. Like, I went back and rewound the film and watched it. Well, maybe it is, but it didn't look like Pierce on the thing. Was it Pierce? That was what I had to assume. But also, which naturally introduces the question of, like, how did you catch the fastest person in your crew? But what matters is that you can't cross Pierce and get away with it. He gets lavenderized. And, (laughs) like, uh, that is the end of Clean Willie. But the thing is, most importantly... The police arrive at the station. They realize that that is what Pierce is trying to do. He is trying to rob the train. They get it. He's trying to rob the train. And, oh, this guy that they've been working with has turned up dead. So they're serious about whatever it is that they're doing, that Pierce or Sims or whoever they know him as is a serious guy. And so they have to really make new security arrangements. What they thought they were going to do before that would have been good enough, they now realize is not going to be good enough. Agar sees all of these new arrangements being made, realizes like, oh, God, the really, really hard job is all, is only going to get harder. He tells Well, Pierce. the new arrangements, too. Let's talk about that. Oh, the, the, yeah, new, yeah. the new arrangements that they're making. So thankfully, I thought they were going to swap the safes out. That's right. what I thought. They have not swapped the safes out. They're really heavy, Josh. They're I mean. really heavy. They're, they're chub safes. That's Chubs. what we keep getting told. They're chub safes. But what they do do is I think two things. And one of them is that they put extra guards with this carriage and say, look, nothing goes in and out of this thing without the say-so of the big man in charge. Everything gets opened, everything gets looked at. And two is they put a padlock on the outside of the train car. So whereas it was unlocked before, you could have just slid it open and gotten inside. Uh Uh-uh, not anymore. There is now a padlock on the outside of the thing Agar sees that all of what they have schemed for and practiced for may now be put at jeopardy. Yeah, it's because like now it's like you've got to find a way to get inside the train car where everything is locked before you can even use the key. And it will be padlocked from the outside. So even if they had the guard on the inside, he wouldn't be able to open it for them. And the train will be moving. And the train will be moving. So how in the world do you get into a moving train car that has a lock on the outside of it and you can't bring anything into the train without it being open. You have a lot of new security in place. How in the world are you going to get in and out of there? Impossible, says Agar. It cannot happen. We are screwed. Except Pierce asks for one thing and you can tell this might be the key. I need a dead cat. I need a dead cat. Why the hell does he need a dead cat? Let's figure that out when we come back. Hi, I'm Josh Dassel, producer and host of the Subgenre Podcast, and right now you're listening to my voice. But did you know that this same space is available for you to market your business, sell your product, or promote your favorite cause or organization to our audience of smart, pop culture-savvy listeners with extraordinary taste in what to listen to? Visit subgenrepodcast.com and click the contact link under Advertise on Subgenre to inquire about what we offer. Ad space is available on this and future episodes of Subgenre and The Pickup Shot, as well as our entire back catalog of episodes. We'd love to do business with you. That's subgenrepodcast.com and click the contact link under Advertise on Subgenre. Keep listening, and maybe next time we'll hear your new ad right here.
This is Subgenre. We are in season two talking about Charming Thieves, and the Charming Thief movie that we have been discussing is The Great Train Robbery with Sir Sean Connery, Donald Sutherland, and Leslie Ann Down. It is a very exciting movie, but there are a few moments of it that uh, might give a person pause, and that's what we're going to talk about in this section. This is Subpar. Yeah, this is a movie with a few moments that uh, one might refer to as a car crash every now and again. So I'm, I'm going to lead us through these, and I just want to get your reaction to the ones that stuck out to me, okay? So we'll start with maybe the most obvious one to me and possibly to anybody else who has seen this movie, which is the accents. What accents, Josh? Right. What accents? And honestly, Canada was part of the crown, part of the <laughs> British Empire, so why should Donald Sutherland even try to put on an English accent? Accent. There is no accent whatsoever tried or succeeded by certainly Donald Sutherland, but almost a majority of the cast who wasn't born British. And I mean, directed by Michael Crichton, an American, maybe he was just so excited that he had all the control that he had over this movie that it didn't really bother him that much, that it was not historically authentic in terms of how they spoke. I can sometimes, you know, again, it's Connery. Like he did Russian with a Scottish brogue. We talked about that. But the accents that are attempted in this, I almost wish they weren't. They're not good and they're not good distractingly so. (laughs) It really is a very well-made movie, but there, it's moments like this that you're just like, you couldn't get a dialect coach? I mean, you know, you had a $6 million budget. You had, you had a great cast. And it's unfortunate because I think if that little detail had been worked on maybe just a little bit, some of the moments in this that fall a little, either a little flat or seem a little hokey, you know, might have felt a little bit more organic yes. if anyone had given any effort into it at all. I agree. Okay. I agree. All right. At least we agree on that one. Mm-hmm. All right. Number two, there's a bit of spoiler here. Not really, but I'll try not to spoil it too badly. When we are dealing with the gold. So we have seen the gold up to this point. There's gold. It's put in these bags. The bags are put in the safe or that's where they're going to be put. There is no weight to these gold bags. It's gold. Gold is heavy. It's dense. <laughs> there's no there's no weight when they pick them up and put them in the safe. There's no weight when these things are chucked around, which they will be later. Like it, They're just as light as air, golden bags. You'd think that would have been important for a prop person, a production designer to think about. I don't know. Considering it was Michael Crichton, that like one of the things that's great about him as a writer is he's usually so airtight about the science behind Mm. what he's doing. Like even Jurassic Park, you know, we have not figured out how to clone dinosaurs, but he definitely did his research. Like this is a way that might have made sense, that might have worked. And you can kind of believe that it would happen. But yeah, for whatever reason, that was a detail that escaped this uh, auteur director, (laughs) writer, (laughs) producer. Like, yeah, it's a bag. It's got the gold in it. We'll just write gold on the outside it'll be fine i know it sounds like i'm being extra particular and i am that's the point of this right here it's subpar i get to be a little particular but to me it's kind of the same thing as my biggest movie tv pet peeve which is no coffee in coffee cups Mm. like you can tell it's an empty damn cup i can tell that's an empty bag of gold it's true Bad British accents, uh, not paying attention to physical science when uh, having bags full of gold. Okay, great. Maybe I can get around that. Okay. Okay, maybe I can. But the last one I'm going to talk about is one that I can't. I'm sorry, I can't. We have in this last section that we were talking about this preparation scene with 
Agar and Pierce and Miriam, where Agar is tasked with beating a 75 second count to get from one place to another, make his wax impressions and get back there without being seen. Okay, we've established that. In the scene, he is running his ass off practicing. Fake stairs, fake putting keys and things and trying to get there and just can't get there. And it just it takes a long time for him to finally even just shave a second off and get to 74 seconds where they can justify going and doing this heist, right? Right. Okay. When we get to the heist and the guard goes to the bathroom and Agar cracks his knuckles and speeds off towards the office to get these keys. What happens at this point is that everyone around him, so this is Pierce, this is Clean Willie, I would assume somewhere in some universe Miriam is counting, everyone is counting along the 75 seconds as if they have watches. They don't. As if they do. Okay, everybody's counting. It's the slowest 75 second count (laughs) I have ever seen in my life. And not even like cinematic time. I can kind of suspend disbelief. It's everybody counting like one Mississippi. I have seen many 75 second spans in my life. This is no 75 second span. There's a lot of moments in movies that are kind of like, oh, they could have done that better. The reason I talk about this so much in this movie is there is so much emphasis and weight placed around this 75 seconds that it's something that should have been shot in real time. It should have. And not to mention that, like, it's a time count. It's not that hard to say, like, oh, well, we'll make it 95 or we'll make it like, you know, 120 or whatever else. And it's like part of me just wonders if it was written as 75 seconds in the novel and the author who also wrote the screenplay, who also was the director, thought like, well, I can't I can't change it. I wrote it in the earlier one. Yeah, that seems like a great idea for the author to also be the screenwriter, to also be the director. That never turns out well. Have you seen a Stephen King movie? It never turns out well. You take that back about maximum overdrive. (laughs) Okay, that's my my beefs with this film. If that's the most I have, then we're in pretty good shape. But by God. Gosh, were these bad. (laughs) That's subpar. Let's get back to our feature presentation. In this last part of the film, we are getting ourselves going for making the big score. We left off in the last part with understanding that all of the preparations we had made may be for naught because there's new security that's been put into place. Agar thinks it's impossible. Pierce does not. And the reason Pierce does not is that he can get his hands on a dead cat. We're going to find out what that means here. It's the day of the robbery. We're in the train station. The Crimean cash is being loaded into the safes. We have all these extra new guards standing around that weren't there before, that are not bribed and are not in on the thing. And the first piece to roll out of this plan is to put Miriam back on the platform looking like a woman in distress. We get our wonderful actress back to act some more. And she's crying next to this casket, which when the station dispatcher asks her what the trouble is, she says the casket contains her dead brother and this awful other train guard won't let the casket board the train without it being open. This guy is so awful. Why will he, won't he let this sealed casket? All these guards have been given new orders. You do not let anything on this train without opening it. Does that mean a casket with a dead body in it? You damn well bet it does. We got to make sure it's really dead. But since the smell of this casket is awful and off-putting, like, you know, it's surely we can let this one slide. We can, the dispatcher assures her we can load this in the train. We won't have to open it. But of course he's overruled. He's overruled. And this says like, no, 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 you're opening that casket and everything else. And so just to make sure that everyone is like alerted to this, the casket has one of those in case of alive burial <laughs> safe catches where there's 
a bell on top of it, and the person inside can pull the bell. And we're meant to think this person has been in the casket for days and days, enough that it smells, and the bell begins to ring. The bell begins to ring. And I think there's a couple of levels where this works. Like, th this is silly, but this is silly, I think, in the best way. This, it's this, my favorite scene in the movie. Yeah, it is the best. It worked for me because there's a tension set up of, oh, no, we can't let them open the casket. This guy won't let it aboard without it being open. So Miriam is obviously trying to get them not to open the casket, and me as an audience, I'm going, don't open the casket, don't open the casket. Well, of course, you get, yeah, you're going to have to open the casket. Okay, well, then when they have to have been given orders to open the casket, it moves to sort of plan B or phase two of this, which is the ringing of the bell. Oh, my God, there's somebody in it. Open the casket. So right? everyone in the station is like alerted to like, we're going to see a Lazarus moment. Someone will rise from the dead. And they open the casket and there lies Agar where just his face is green as like a Martian <laughs> appearing to be dead from cholera. And Donald Sutherland, true to his ham nature, just has this expression of on his face and it's incredible. And it's that moment where we knew he died. We knew there was supposed to be a dead person in there. I figured maybe it was empty. No, we open the coffin. There's Sutherland who they've dressed up and painted and made look like he's dead. Okay, he's dead. There is a guy in there. He's not alive and ringing the bell. The bell was being blown by the wind, they assure her. But they had planned for this moment. They had put him in there. What they have further planned in order to get people, once they have opened the coffin, not to linger, is to tell them, oh, he died of cholera. Mm -hmm. Oh, we should close that back up as yeah. soon as humanly possible and yeah. everyone run away. So they close the casket immediately and they place it on board, satisfied that, yes, this is a real dead body. Yes, folks. And yeah, they and he smells awful. And they, they put the casket into the space next to the safes and they lock the padlock door so we know that Agar is inside. And that allows then a moment for Pierce to grab Miriam off the platform. Oh, ma'am, come with me. Takes her away now that her casket has been rolled into, the, and she said it was her brother. I think it was her brother's right. casket. He takes her away and leads her to the train car that they are going to sit in together, the compartment, which would have been great, except for the fact that on the way there, they run into Fowler. Fowler. So the, the gent who always keeps the key around his neck just happens to be back here because he's insisted on riding on the train to keep it safe. And Pierce is like, ah, we cannot allow him to ride in the same train car as me. So Pierce asks Fowler to look after Miriam. Uh -huh. You just know that Miriam in this moment is like, ah, why would you put me in this car with this man again? I hate him. And Pierce does the look after with the wink, wink, you know, uh. sort of playing into what he knows is Fowler's weakness again, the mm -hmm. thing that will make Fowler go away is give him a woman and send him on. Yeah, and the always horny Fowler decides like, yeah, yeah, sounds great. And he carts Miriam away and she's revolted but still is playing the part because she's a professional. But definitely looks back at Pierce and gives him the you son of a bitch mm -hmm. look. Yeah, mm -hmm. yep. Pierce manages to get into a compartment by himself, which is what he wanted. Miriam is off into the other compartment with Fowler. The train is off and, and Agar is back somewhere in, in his casket back there in the baggage compartment. Well, back in that baggage compartment, Agar starts banging on the casket lid. OK, train's moving. Let me the hell out of here. The bribed guard, right? This is the guard who was helping them before. He is the one who's still in there in the train car. We had extras outside guarding it. But once it's locked, he's the one on the inside. He removes the lid to the casket, letting Agar out. And we discover that that big giant smell was the dead cat. The dead cat. So that's why if someone asks you for a dead cat, they have have a reason, and that was... And that reason is they're going to rob a moving train yeah, of Crimean that's, gold. That's always what it is. Agar, of course, is disgusted about this, but he's safely in there next to the safe. That part of the plan is worked out. Cut to Fowler hitting on Miriam in the compartment and asking her to join the 50 mile per hour club, which is... Uh, uh, 
Is this an anachronism for ha ha ha? Or was this kind of where the other came I from? Refuse to be- I refuse to believe <laughs> that like there was a 50 mile per hour club. This has to have just been them like, you know, taking mile high club and putting it onto a train yeah. in the 19th century. It's a silly moment. He's in there being lecherous, trying to get on her. She's trying to get away from him. We understand that this is going to escalate. And that's kind of where we leave it because we jump back to Agar, who is now at work in the back. He's at the safe. He's managed to open the safe because he has the four keys, which we went through all this trouble to get. He's pulling the gold out of the safe and he is replacing it in the bags with iron bars. Yeah. yeah so the weight will be pretty much the same and everything else. So it's Not like, that it's going to matter because we're going to throw around weightless gold. Weightless gold. Bags. But you yeah. know, it's just like for this, we see the gold get removed. Sure. And that's what really matters. At this point, yeah, the gold's been removed. We just got to figure out how do you open the train car from a moving train? Cut to like one of the best action sequences of this movie, which is Pierce climbing out of his carriage to the roof of the train to walk on the train's roof all the way back to the locked train car. Yeah, and this is jumping from car to car. This is nearly falling off the side of the top of the train. This is Old West train hijinks. It's Pierce doing it by himself. Fun fact, we talked about actors doing their own stunts and, you know, the actor that played uh, Clean Willie climbing that wall by himself. Sean Connery did his own stunts running around the top of a train. Yeah, because, I mean, watching the scene, that's one of the things that occurred to me is I'm like, oh, he's really on that train because you can see Sean Connery's face. Clearly, it's 1978. There was no, like, ability to, like, put somebody else's face on another actor. I'm like, wow, he's actually on that train having to duck under these bridges. Yeah, that's the thing. (laughs) Like, they're passing under these bridges with just inches to spare. Uh, I'm sorry, we're in in Britain. Millimeters to spare (laughs) between him being decapitated and not. And it is an exciting sequence. This was done correctly. Yes. And I think as a just a side note to that, him doing his own stunts, like, you know, Connery's a strong dude. I can see him being gung-ho for doing stunts. But I think from what I understand, you know, the train was only supposed to be going at 20, 25 mile an hour. Fast, you can use a long lens, you can make it look a little faster, but not fast enough that it's as dangerous. It's relatively safe. The way that they were, the engineer was timing the speed of the train, because there was no speed gauge on it, was counting telephone poles as they went by and sort of gauging the speed by that. They made a mistake. They were gauging it incorrectly. And it was found later that the train was moving something closer to about 55 miles an hour. Geez. So literally the speed they were talking about. Literally the speed they were talking about with Connery hanging on by his fingernails on the top of this damn thing. That's a great fact. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) It makes the scene even better because it really is this exciting moment. And one of my favorite things about Connery's performance in this movie is this is the time where you actually see him look like uncertain and kind of afraid. Like he's so debonair, so cool throughout so much of the movie, even when the police are chasing him, that in this moment, you actually see this look of like, this is hard and kind of and dangerous. <laughs> it gets even more dangerous because after he has leapt and jumped and crawled and almost gotten hit by bridges, he gets all the way to the last train car, which is this baggage car where he needs to be. But he still has to unlock the sliding door on the outside, on the side of the car, on the outside of this thing to be able to get inside. So the plan for this is there's a couple of stovepipes or, or, you know, holes in the top of the train car. He tosses a rope, one end down one side, one end down the other. On the inside, you've got Agar and this bribed guard who are using their body weight to hold this rope. And Connery essentially wraps the rope around himself and has them lower him down the side of this train car to unlock the door. Yeah. And it's crazy exciting that because, you know, whereas he was missing bridges when he was on top of the thing, he's missing bridges from the side while he's hanging on to the side of this train car. So I'm assuming he did this stunt by himself as well. So, yeah. So he manages to pick the lock and gets inside 
to be there with Agar. They follow the plan, get the gold, and like they're throwing the gold out of the train so it will be picked up later. They know where it's going to be. But Pierce realizes that he's covered in soot and like, oh, I didn't bring a change of clothes with me. And and like Agar kind of says, 19th century England version of, well, sucks to be you. And then <laughs> and then like uh, Pierce is like, mm-mm. And he's like, oh, come on. And then like he makes like Agar remove his own clothes. Yeah, so he leaves Agar basically naked. Nice you know, shirt, yeah. right? <laughs> you know, you think you would have thought of that, that you're going to be climbing on top of a train. My favorite bit was that when he was climbing on the train, he had his suit jacket on at the beginning and then throws it off while he's like climbing on there. I'm like, you did all this planning and then this happened this way. So goal achieved, sort of. They've gotten the gold out of the safe. They've gotten the gold out of the train. It's out in a field somewhere that a guy with a buggy is going to go pick it up. And now all that's left to do is... Agar has to get back into the casket and get sealed back up so that he can be carted away as the dead guy later on. Perfect. The bags are inside the safe, filled with lead bars so that uh, it's not immediately apparent that there's been a theft. The, The safes have been locked back. But Pierce now has to do the opposite of what he just did, which is he's got to get himself back up onto the moving train, and then he's got to make his way all the way back to his compartment and get in there before they get to Folkestone Station, which is coming up pretty quickly. With the clothes that he's just taken from Agar. Right. And then do the quickest of possible quick changes inside the car. He gets changed just in time as this thing pulls into the station. Yeah, you're watching him like wipe the soot off his face right as the train's stopping. And so they've gotten away with it. Hey, look, they've stolen the gold. They've gotten the gold to somebody else. And here they are. All they've got to do is get off this train and get away. This is the last part where if things are going to go wrong, this is where they're going to go wrong. And they start out going right because the casket is wheeled off of the baggage car. Uh, Miriam, there in black, of course, is there to join it and sort of solemnly process with it as it's taken outside the train station, put on the back of a wagon driven by this fourth mystery guy. And she's sitting up with him and they are ready to go. The only thing that is missing from this is they need Pierce. Who is making his way through the crowd wearing a coat that does not fit him because no. it's fitted for Agar. And so when you see him walk, he has the coat very tightly around his front but the back, the seams have split and everything along the back. So anyone that looks at him from behind is going to notice something's up with this guy. And and he's trying his best to, you know, be uh, nondescript and walk his way out of the station. Because all he's got to do is get to this wagon and then they can all ride away together. The problem is that jacket. Because as he walks outside of the station... A group of policemen, including, I think, was it maybe, was it that prosecutor or at least somebody yeah. else? Yeah, are there waiting because they knew that John Sims or, or Pierce was going to try to rob this train. They just didn't know how or why or when. Mm-hmm. And he manages to almost get away, but is then spotted by the police. They see the, the open seam on the back and realize yeah. something's wrong with him. So arrest that man. And Pierce is seized by the cops and, and Miriam, led away in shackles. Yeah. And Miriam leaves him. Miriam has to leave him. She, she makes the choice to get away. He doesn't acknowledge her. She doesn't acknowledge him. She sees him being led away into the paddy wagon and she has to ride away and gets away with Agar, who's still in the casket. And that is how this whole caper ends. It isn't how the movie ends, though, because the way we end this movie, and this is the last scene of the movie, is it's in court. Pierce has obviously been arrested. He has, we find out in the course of this trial, he has confessed to the crime. I definitely did that. Doesn't seem that he's implicated either Miriam or Agar or Mystery Man. Mm -hmm. He's taking the blame himself. And uh, he says, no, no, no. If anybody who says it wasn't me, they're confused. I did this. The judge just gives him this like confronting Joe McCarthy kind of speech. Like, have you at last no sense of shame, sir? No sense of decency. And just it goes on for on and on this monologue of just like, you know, it's like, why would you do this nefarious thing? And just imagine 
me saying that eight times over in different ways. The judge asked him just flat out, he says, why in the world would you rob this train? To which he replies, I wanted the money. <laughs> which is a great line. It's perfect. And the audience recognizes it's a great line too. The other folks in court are like, he's going to get like, you know, the full sentence for that one. But everyone's really excited and they're all cheering for him. And he's, as he's led outside, it's like he's a populist hero. And everyone thinks that he's wonderful. And like the and sex worker from earlier just gives him a free kiss. As people who are infamous in court have their fans. And like you said, he it looks like he's a folk hero here. He's led out of that court through the front. People are cheering. He's making his way there. You know, the cops are trying to drag him through. The sex worker from four, like you said, comes up and pastes one on him, which, oh my, isn't that fun and sexy? But we find out pretty shortly why she did that. She has passed him the key to his cuffs, which he uses to unlock them, fight off the guards, and then the escape in the prison wagon, which is driven by Agar. And that's it. That's how this ends. Is he Roll credits. Roll yeah. credits. He leaves court convicted. He's about to be taken to prison. And with the help of the surreptitious key that's placed in his mouth and a little bit of daring do and fighting off people and just having gotten agar in the right place, he now can hang off the back of this wagon as it takes off into the streets and uh, off they go to go enjoy the gold for the rest of forever, which they do at a very lackadaisical speed <laughs> that I, I probably could have walked up and pulled him off the back of the car. It's a good thing the movie ended when it did because it the really cops would have caught him in real life. It really is. But that is the ending of this film of The Great Train Robbery from 1978. There was a lot that happened in this movie, but this movie was really a straightforward heist movie with some interesting characters on the side of it, I think is how I would look at this film. Absolutely. Straightfor very straightforward plot-wise and everything else. And that's The Great Train Robbery. That means it is time for You Can't Handle the Truth. This is the quiz segment of our show. Alan Mall, I am going to give you three multiple choice questions. You are going to answer them to the best of your ability. And if you can answer at least two out of the three, you today are going to win four Chubb safe keys. Yes. What you do with them after I give them to you is up to you. Just but find a Chubb safe. That's right. <laughs> that's what you're playing for today. Are you ready to play Alan Mall? Let's do it. All right. Question number one. In 1903, Edward S. Porter directed the legendary silent film, also entitled The Great Train Robbery, known for its finale, where a Wild West villain points a pistol at the screen and fires. Two years later, in 1905, Porter would direct a parody of his own film, entitled The Little Train Robbery, where what theft occurs on a miniature railroad car? Is it A, children stealing candy and dolls, B, little people stealing tiny shoes, or C, a flea circus steals the entire train? I'm going to go with C, flea circus feels very 1905. It's a good guess. I'm sorry. Unfortunately, it was A. It's children stealing candy and dolls. Okay. It is a children theft parody of The Great Train Robbery. That's okay. One down. You got two to go. You can still redeem yourself. Let's move on to question two. Early in life, after Sean Connery was discharged from the Merchant Navy, he briefly turned to what profession before becoming an actor? Is it A, haggis quality control, B, pimping, or C, nude modeling. I think it was C, nude modeling. 
That is correct. Way to go, Sean. Yeah, right? (laughs) At the age of 19, Connery was discharged from the Merchant Navy because of a duodenal ulcer. It's a condition that runs in his family. But following that, to make some scratch, he worked as a nude model for art students in Edinburgh. Well done. One and one, Alan Mall, on You Can't Handle the Truth. All the marbles. This is it right here. Here we go with question three. Actors often change their name when they enter show business. For instance, Charles Estevez became Charlie Sheen. Now known as the legendary actor Donald Sutherland, what was the Canadian actor's real birth name? Was it A, Pete Davidson, B, Trudeau Harper Martin Chrétien Campbell Mulroney, or C, Donald Sutherland? I guess I'll go with B. B, which is Trudeau Harper Martin Chrétien Campbell Mulroney. Oh, no. Please leave that in. I want you, I want that moment of, of, of just me silently knowing that I won the You had hands keys. raised in victory. I pushed the wrong button. No, I'm sorry. You bastard, Josh <laughs> Dassel. I giveth and then I taketh away. No, was, I'm sorry. Donald Sutherland's birth name is Donald Sutherland. It's actually I Donald McNichol Sutherland. I don't like this question, No, Josh. it's a trick. It's a trick. He was born on the 17th of July in 1935 in New Brunswick. The B answer, the Trudeau, Harper, Martin, Chrétien, Campbell, Mulroney are just the last names of the last six prime ministers of Canada strung together. Five, six, whatever. The point is, (laughs) you got got one out of three. I got like maybe one or two keys of the four that I needed. That's right. It was a trick question. I admit that. I'm sorry to do that to you, but unfortunately, no. No keys for you today on uh, You Can't Handle the Truth, but it was a valiant effort. That means it's time for Rave Rental or Refund. These are our last thoughts, our last feelings on this film, The Great Train Robbery. Is it a rave? So awesome. A rental? Yeah, it's fine. Or a refund? Don't love it. Give me my money back. Uh, Rave Rental or Refund, Alan Mall? I will say if you are a fan of any of the actors, it is absolutely a rave. Like, it's fun to watch Donald Sutherland and Sean Connery do their thing. If you're a normal movie watcher, it is a rental. This is a great rental. It is an enjoyable movie, but judging by how much Josh and I were able to complain about it, it, I would not call this a masterpiece. I would wholeheartedly agree with you. I think it is a fine rental film. It's fun. It has great actors in it. It has a plot you can follow. It is exciting in parts. It's funny in parts. But at no time during any of this movie, I think, do any of those moments rise to being exceptional. Yeah, you're not buying the Criterion Collection DVD of The Great Train Robbery. No, I don't think I'll do that. All right, great. So this is our last moments here on the show. Alan, I want to first thank you for coming back here and uh, doing an episode in season two. And uh, hopefully if there is a season three, you will come back for that as well. There had better been a season three. I have to actually win the quiz segment at some point. Yeah, we got to do that. This is your time. Plug yourself. What do you got going on? What should the people know about Alan Mall? Yeah, well, the best place to follow me is going to be at Twitter, where my uh, handle is at MahlerBaller. So M-A-U-L-E-R Baller. And uh, the best thing that I've got going lately is I've just finished a draft of my new romantic comedy about the kilogram changing mass. And if you're intrigued at all by that premise, I promise you it's worth a read. I've got it up on New Play Exchange, which, you know, if you're a playwright with a membership and if not, you should get one. I'll be happy to get you the link. I just tweeted it out. So it's on there and it's ready to read. And beyond that, just stay tuned for other like uh, fun things. All you got to do is follow me on Twitter. And let's say it again. Congratulations on the new baby. Thank you, sir. He's a fantastic boy. This has been Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. Subgenre is a production of Kabunki and is recorded and mixed at Studio K. This episode was written, produced, and hosted by me, Josh Dassel, alongside my guest host, playwright Alan Mall. 
Our theme music is Still Room on the Night Train by Ketza featuring Solar Flare. If you can't get enough of this show and need some more, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you choose to listen. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review if you can. Trust me when I say it's massive in helping other listeners find us, just like you did. You can also support Subgenre with your donation. You'll find the link and more about our show and all of our archived episodes from Season 1 at our website, subgenrepodcast.com. We also do the Insta and Twitter thing, both at SubgenrePod. Come back very soon for our next episode of Subgenre Season 2 Charming Thieves. But in the meantime, please remember, we're all different. So no matter what your subgenre, be kind to who you meet. That's a wrap. Kabunki. Oh.